Hello and welcome to the Women Inspire podcast with me, Laura Adams. This is the podcast that inspires us by honouring remarkable women past and present. Women whose achievements have perhaps gone unrecognised, been forgotten or at times completely erased and whose stories are crying out to be told. In 1940, an American pilot landed his amphibious plane on Whale Key, an island just nine miles by four in the Bahamas. He wouldn't be staying for long. As he touched down in the water, he said a short, well-built woman came popping out holding a double-barreled shotgun and with dull menace in her lovely orbs. Pilot had come face to face with Joe Carstairs, the cigar-smoking, cross-dressing, speedboat-racing force of nature who defied convention and who defies description. In today's podcast, we explore the life of a woman who, without any doubt, did it her way. Marion Barbara Carstairs was born in 1900 in Mayfair, London. And she would later claim that she was never a little girl. I came out of the womb queer. Her legal, though possibly not biological father, was Captain Albert Carstairs, a Scottish soldier. Her mother was an American beauty and heiress, Frances Evelyn Bostick, known as Evelyn. Little is known of their marriage, but certainly her mother was never faithful. Her father had re-enlisted with the army just before Joe's birth, and after their divorce two years later... He disappeared. Joe asserted that she never even knew her father's name. Evelyn's tycoon father had founded the highly criticised Standard Oil Company. As an American in London, Evelyn contrived to raise her reputation by becoming lady-in-waiting to Queen Alexandra, the wife of King Edward VII. Joe soon acquired a stepfather and two half-siblings were to follow. She did not care for her new family. One day at London Zoo, she fell from a camel and was knocked unconscious. On coming round, she earned herself a new nickname of Tuffy, and she claims that in that moment, she cast Marion aside and was reborn as Joe, a fully formed creation, much in the manner of Athena when she burst from Zeus's head. Her mother describes Joe as a bull in a china shop with an early rebellious streak. Her stepfather attempted to tame her, and when one day he discovered her stealing his cigars, he punished her by making her sit down and smoke one. At this, Joe, who at the age of eight had already collected quite a stash of cigars, calmly sat down, lit up, and smoked the cigar to the end. By the time this marriage too was dissolved, her mother was addicted to heroin and alcohol. She was unpredictable and reeled from one extreme to another, and Joe veered from adoring to hating her, which made her feel vulnerable. What was going to happen, she said. I never knew. I was a strong little brute, but, you know. Joe coped by building a protective wall of fantasy around her, and it was around this time that she developed a love of boats and sailing. One of her few happy childhood memories was sailing in her own dinghy in Southampton with a jug of water and some crackers. She would claim that the only thing she admired in life were boats. She painted a picture of herself as being a bully, but says she would never cry if beaten for it, for it would have made them happy. She was apparently deemed to be so dangerous to her siblings that she was sent away to a girls' boarding school in Connecticut at the age of 11. 
Though she would never have admitted it, one wonders how much a sense of rejection and abandonment added to the invisible shell that she had built around herself. At school, Jo used her pocket money to buy boys pyjamas and shoes and she had crushes on various of her school friends. She was good at games and would eat oranges rather than sweets, mindful of her health even then, and it would appear that this was a happy time for her. She lived with the fear of being called back home to her mother, though, and a life where she was miserable and didn't fit in. Her mother had meanwhile married a third husband, a French count, and on meeting him, Jo took to him straight away. He was someone who respected who she was. He adapted his racing car for her, offered her cigars, and even one day took her to a Parisian brothel. She said she felt like she was his son. Her mother vetoed her ambition to be a doctor, but in 1916, Joe's grandmother persuaded the American Red Cross to send her to drive ambulances in France. She arrived in Paris shortly before America joined the war and moved into an apartment with four other drivers. Paris was being heavily shelled, and one day, as she drove down the Place de la Concorde, an aircraft was shot down in front of her, and she dragged the pilot out of the plane, only to find that he was dead. It was in Paris that she had her first sexual experience and said, My God, what a marvellous thing. I found it a great pity I'd waited so long. She became infatuated with one of the other ambulance drivers, Dolly, the niece of Oscar Wilde. She was a theatrical, larger-than-life character who was an important influence on Joe. Apparently, Dolly Wilde looked like Oscar and was described as half androgyne and half goddess. She was also a great conversationalist. Her words flew out like soap bubbles. Paris was bohemian and sexually liberated, and here young Jo learnt to express herself. Even though she watched from the sidelines, she would later go on to recreate what she saw in 1920s London. When Evelyn heard about Jo's lesbian affairs, she summoned her to her rooms and insisted that she marry or she would be disinherited. A mighty row ensued, though in fact, in order to secure her inheritance, Jo did marry her childhood friend, Count Jacques Dupré, though the marriage was not consummated and annulled soon after. The last of Evelyn's husbands, Sergei Voronov, whom Jo hated, was a Russian-French surgeon who transplanted monkey testicle tissue into humans in the early 1920s, and he claimed that this would rejuvenate his subjects. Evelyn helped him, but the experiments eventually failed, and she died not long after. After the war, Joe went to Dublin and enlisted with the Women's Legion Mechanical Transport Section, a band of 40 young women who served as drivers to British officers. She was there at a time when anti-British feeling was coming to the boil, and the volunteers, who had become the IRA, were gaining strength. This was dangerous work, as the officers' cars could be ambushed at any time. In later years, Joe only appeared to remember the poker games and the high-spirited japes. In 1919, Joe, along with 250 other women drivers, found herself in northern France, where battlefields were being cleared, the dead were being buried, and towns were being reconstructed. It was a time of hard work and camaraderie, as they all did their bit in helping remake 500 miles of wasteland, where once forests, canals and farms had been. Even the earth itself in places had to be remade. 
the women drove wounded soldiers from casualty clearing stations to large hospitals. They ferried Chinese labour battalions and German prisoners of war to work and acted as chauffeurs to the officers who were organising the reburial of the dead in Imperial war grave cemeteries. Driving conditions were difficult with debris everywhere and the women were skilled at repairing their often damaged vehicles. In 1920, the women were demobilised and back in London, Jo set up a chauffeuring business with her friends. They moved into a flat above a garage in a converted stable in Kensington and bought a handful of luxury six-seater Daimlers. All skilled drivers and good linguists, they took tourists on expeditions to the Wargrave cemeteries in France and Belgium. They offered touring holidays in the British Isles and would take any work on offer. They made connections with hotel porters at the five-star hotels in London, giving them 10% commission for work that came their way, and the Savoy proved particularly lucrative. Apparently the novelty of female drivers confused their passengers, who were not quite sure whether to treat the chauffeurs as servants or as equals. During the war, women's work had been essential, and in the immediate aftermath with women by now far outnumbering men, there were a number of opportunities in traditionally male-dominated fields for ambitious young women. Sadly, within a few years, the anxiety and fear that women would take men's jobs permanently meant opportunities were once more closed to them. In the early 1920s, Jo lived on a secluded Hampshire estate, looking over the sea to the Isle of Wight. Here she acquired her first boat, a great yacht she named Sonia and called a real terrible girl. She soon proved herself to be a magnificent yachtswoman and started to compete. I liked the boats, she said. I liked the way they behaved. I understood them. Having come into her fortune by now, she was in a position to commission the ultimate motorboat, a 17-foot, 1.5-litre hydroplane, which she named Gwen after her current lover. When the boat capsized, however, during a test run, she reversed the letters and called her Nug instead. She chose motorboats over any other racing vehicle because she said you could feel the speed better than in any other machine. But it was a seriously dangerous sport and if thrown into the water, racers could be knocked unconscious. The leading motorboat competition in Britain was the Duke of York's trophy on the River Thames, which consisted of four seven-and-a-half-mile laps between Putney and Mortlake. In 1925, Joe entered and achieved the fastest time in the second round, with fifth place overall. Women racers were extremely rare, but interestingly, her novelty factor seemed to excite little attention in the press. On Christmas Day 1925, Joe received a present from her then-partner, Ruth Baldwin. It was a doll. Just over a foot high, he was a stuffed leather mannequin, made by the celebrated toy maker Steef. He had a round head, a round button nose, black beady eyes, arched eyebrows and an innocent look. A tiny man with the face of a boy. Joe called him Lord Todd Wadley and he became her companion. By the front door of the house she shared with Ruth, she mounted a plaque which read Marion Barbara Carstairs and Lord Todd Wadley. He was Joe's mascot, but whilst happy to risk her own life, she would never risk taking him onto the water. Despite this, he brought her luck, with win after win, including the 1926 Duke of York's trophy. 
By now, she was the most celebrated female motorboat racer in Britain. Jo lapped up the attention, and with an audience, she felt she came alive. In the meantime, Jo kit Lord Todd out in Savile Row suits like her own. His shoes came from Italy, and over his suits he wore a sealskin coat trimmed with fur. He seems to have taken on a personality of his own, even appearing in a magazine with a feature on his celebrity lifestyle. Jo sat for several portraits with Lord Todd, and her attachment to him seems bizarre, but there is no doubt that he filled a fundamental need in some way, and did so for the rest of her life. Jo loved London in the Roaring Twenties. Healthy young girls are more boyish than boys, ran a headline in the Daily Mail. Jo was perfectly suited to the era, dressed as a man, with short hair, tattoos, a cigarette in her mouth, driving fast cars and boats, affairs with glamorous actresses, and her constant companion, Lord Todd Wadley. As she said herself, Jo was absolutely mad on physical fitness. She went skiing and tobogganing in Switzerland, rode horses in Hampshire, and sailed and swam in the sea nearby. Then at night she would get dressed up and drink and dance the night away. She was theatrical in her manner and would love to pose with a cool and insolent look, cigarette in hand. Her voice was apparently deep and resonant with a slight American accent, though apparently the cigarettes were purely a prop and she never inhaled. Joe and Ruth would throw wild parties on pleasure boats on the Thames and at home, where the dress code was usually fancy dress and guests often ended the evening naked. Even though neighbours petitioned to have the women evicted, promiscuity and homosexuality in their own circles was seen as exciting and daring. Though Joe was with Ruth for several years, both women had other partners, and at this time Joe had a brief affair with the American actress Tallulah Bankhead. Her passion was sailing and she longed for the prestigious Harmsworth Trophy, but failed to win in 1928 in Detroit due to a near-catastrophic accident. She again failed in two subsequent bids, but her boating prowess was undeniable and she had established herself as the fastest woman on water in the world. The day after the 1930 bid, the house she was staying in burnt down and soon after she narrowly escaped death again when her motor car spun into a ditch. The liberated 1920s soon turned into the more conservative 30s, and Jo was now being regarded with suspicion. Her gum-chewing, tattoos, spitting and swearing were looked upon with distaste. In 1931, she left London and set off on a 15-month round-the-world voyage. India was the highlight of the trip, where she hunted panthers and went swimming in crocodile-infested waters. I do not remember enjoying a swim so much, she would say. Afterwards, she travelled back and forth between London and New York. She continued to sail, loving the water more than anything. In 1933, Jo saw an advert offering an island for sale in the British West Indies, or the Bahamas as it is known today. It was nine miles long, four miles wide, and called Whale Key. The following year, she bought it for $40,000 and left England for good. She later admitted to being $100,000 in debt, having paid no taxes at all in Britain or America in the 1920s, and her flight to Whale Key, a tax haven, was her only way of escaping jail. Added to this, her relationship with Ruth had deteriorated, 
and her dream to be the fastest motorboat racer in the world was at an end. She wanted to be alone, and she believed that Whale Key was beckoning her. This island had a particular liking for me, she said. On arrival, she found that a depression had descended upon the islands, and there was much work to be done. She set about transforming it, and hired local men to help her to lay a road from one end of the island to the other. It was hot, hard, dusty work, and insects were a constant distraction. Buildings gradually went up and people from the neighbouring islands flocked there. Eventually, her own great house, a Spanish villa, which she had designed herself, was built on the southern tip. The lighthouse was rebuilt and a power plant, radio station and schoolhouse went up. Even a museum celebrating her own achievements was built. Plantations were established both here and on other islands she bought. By the late 1930s, 200 permanent residents were living at Whale Quay. The island was ready to receive guests and a steady stream of friends arrived, along with movie stars, artists, directors, even the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Joe had a notorious affair with Marlena Dietrich and they would rendezvous aboard Joe's boat, Sonia too. She would call Dietrich Babe and was so besotted she tried to give her the whole Whalekey Island. But later, when the relationship had soured, she referred to her as a wicked old woman, a bitch. Joe was known as the boss and she was the ruler in her own fantasy kingdom. Years later, she would say, I had a country going, I ran a country. Joe was undoubtedly complicated, unconventional and self-centred, but she was also very generous, always ready to help out a friend in need and provide for them financially. On Whale Key, she founded a League of Youth for the locals, which was a project to improve Bahamians' economic and social standing. During World War II, she led an intrepid rescue mission. On hearing that the US ship Potlatch had been torpedoed, Joe set off in the dead of night and sailed 350 miles into waters infested with German U-boats. There she rescued 47 American sailors. They had been drifting for 30 days on an overturned schooner and were close to death. They only realised she was not a man but a woman when they reached safety in the capital of the Bahamas, Nassau. Later in life, she moved to Miami then to Naples and finally Florida, where she died in 1993, age 93, with Lord Todd by her side. They were both cremated and their ashes buried together. From childhood, Jo faced abandonment and rejection, and this undoubtedly shaped the course of her life. She was an outsider who often sat on the fringes of society and was always ready to push boundaries and to do something outrageous or provocative. Looking at her life in its entirety, though, it is also clear she was generous, driven to contribute and to make a difference, whether as a driver in war-torn northern France or on her own island, Whale Key. Most of us, myself included, live within the constraints of the culture we are born into. But Jo thumbed her nose at that and created her own world instead, one of challenge, excitement and theatre, in which she presided over all. How can one not admire that? Dull, she once said, is a word that should be torn to pieces to see what it is made of. 
thank you for listening to the Women Inspire podcast. My main source this week was Kate Summerscale's wonderful biography, The Queen of Whale Key, which I can really recommend. Please see our website, womeninspire.co.uk, for a transcript. And if you enjoyed the podcast today, please tell your friends. Join us next week to hear the story of a small woman with the courage of a lion who became a hero of the trade union movement. In the meantime, all the best until then.